0: Welcome back to The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dana Swedan, Dr. Saba's producer. This episode is part of our What Plants Crave series, where Dr. Saba speaks with growers, researchers, and other experts in controlled environment agriculture to get their insights about the direction of the industry and, of course, what it is exactly that plants crave. On today's episode, we're speaking to Angie Fulton. And a note for this episode... Negative 15 degrees Celsius is 5 degrees Fahrenheit, and 47 degrees Celsius is 116, almost 117 degrees Fahrenheit. Thanks for listening.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Doctor Is In podcast. I'm Dr. Nadia Saba, and this is our special series, What Plants Crave. Today's guest is Angela Fulton lead cultivator at Whistler Medical Marijuana Corporation, which is a subsidiary of Aurora. If you don't know, Aurora is one of the world's largest cannabis companies and Canada's first organically certified cannabis producers. Whistler is pretty unique in that they produce certified organic cannabis in an indoor operation, something I'm hoping we'll get to talk a little bit about today. Hi, Angie. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Nadia. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to learn more about you, about the plants you grow, which are cannabis, at least presently, and the importance of applying research and the things that you've learned through your experience to grow this crop in an indoor environment. I'm also really curious to learn how you came to Canada from South Africa. So... <laughs> I guess, first off, what got you interested in horticulture in the first place?
2: It, it sort of happened by accident, actually. My family's all gotten crazy. My older brother's an agronomist, and so one of my uncles. But I was already always really focused on uh, animals, and my background was in environmental management. Um, and I was kind of between jobs, and I had someone that said, hey, you should get involved with the cannabis industry, and it was kind of really taking off around here. And uh, turns out I really enjoyed it. So happened largely by accident, but no looking back.
1: Environmental management. So why was the cannabis industry particularly a place you should go or somebody would recommend you go at, from environmental management?
2: I think it was more the unknown uh, scientific growing around cannabis. Um, there's mm-hmm. obviously so many gaps uh, that still need to be filled and um, trying to bridge that gap was something that really drew me in, into the field and, and see where I could apply some of what I'd learned elsewhere and, and bring it to some of these growing environments that we're still just trying to find the feet.
1: What does it mean? What does an environmental manager do? So usually
2: you're a kind of biologist, essentially. Okay. Uh, my focus is actually more on uh, fisheries. And so you're looking at the health of streams and doing habitat restoration and basically going around areas before they build or develop something and checking out the health of the ecosystem.
1: I can't even tell you how many of my guests have come from aquaculture or water treatment or something related to fish and wildlife. It's really fascinating how you guys find your way to, to cannabis and horticulture through fish. (laughs) So how, okay. You have to tell me, how did you end up in Canada coming from South Africa?
2: This is a whole other story. Actually,
1: I, uh, (laughs) other family
2: members of mine started a ski resort in South Africa. So I learned to ski in South Africa. Yeah, you, uh, you could call it skiing, I guess. Okay. But uh, it's man-made snow in the middle of nowhere. And I really wanted to go somewhere and spend a solid winter skiing and just, you know, living the ski bum lifestyle. And I came here and I just loved it. And it's been 12 years now.
1: Okay, got it. Never went back. It's funny how that happens. Um, well, yeah. I mean, Whistler is super famous for snow activities, snow sports. So I feel like you found a good place to do that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And it also happened to be a a place where, you know, the, the gray market really developed a a strong reputation for producing good quality cannabis. And so I think it kind of brought a lot of different
1: parts of my life together. Yeah, sure. Sure. So how did you find Whistler? I mean, what brought you to Whistler, the company, the marijuana producer and not the city, and what do you do in your role as lead cultivator?
2: So I had been working with some other growers in the legacy market, and they had referred me to the lead cultivator at the time and said, hey, you should go work with this company. They're they're really starting to take off, and they were following the legalized path of production. And I asked to, to come help out and saw the trajectory that the company was taking on. And I was really fascinated by the organic aspect as well, and trying to make that work within an indoor environment, as well as all of the really intensive Canadian regulations.
1: Yeah. I mean, while, while you brought up organic I mean, it's so curious that you guys, I mean, I know Canada is not the U.S., and I am assuming that Canadian organic is probably different than U.S. certified organic. I know a lot of growers here, whether it's cannabis or it's lettuce, struggle to make an argument for organic certification when they're producing indoors or even in a greenhouse, even though they're doing a lot of great things with hydroponics and recycling nutrients and reducing certain waste, it's still really hard for them to break through and and convince the uh, USDA organic certification body that they should be certified as such. What I mean, what is the process like in Canada, and how have you been able to to get that organic certification?
2: So a lot of it comes down to the Canadian Organic Federation guidelines and they set standards and then the third party certifying bodies that give you a license to say that you're organic, they vet your process according to those guidelines. There has been a lot of contention mainly around the use of artificial light, but following all the other guidelines and inputs right now, cannabis is continued to be allowed to call itself organic underneath those guidelines. But yeah, from a purist perspective, then it should definitely, organics should be grown
1: outside. So, so what exactly are you, what standards or what guidelines are you meeting for organic certification growing indoors? Like, can you just, is there a checklist, like a few points that you can share?
2: Yeah. Some of the major ones are the media that you're using, how you're amending that media as well. So what kind of nutrients you're using? Uh, Pest control products is another big one. Mm -hmm. So those all have to be listed for use in organic production. And they do take a look at the waste production in your stream as well. So are you reusing your soil? How are you doing that? How are you managing your water? All of those types of things.
1: So. So are you growing in soil? Yes. So that's a challenge in and of itself in an indoor environment, I would imagine. Oh, yes. <laughs>
2: um, <laughs> it's, it's been an
1: interesting learning curve for sure. We're, I mean, um, were you growing in a different media before soil and, and had that learning curve or you guys always started with soils?
2: We always started with soils. Moving to different facilities was really interesting depending on how they were built. For instance, the facility that we had built in, in 2018, the rooms were sealed. And so when you applied water to those soil beds, we had this crazy increase in carbon dioxide and without adequate exhaust, there's nowhere for it to go. And it actually injures the plants as you ramp the lights up. So understanding the implications of that and how you now need to balance your airflow and create an exhausting opportunity was uh, unfortunately a costly uh, learning experience, but we're past that now.
1: That is really interesting that you say that have being growing in a sealed room with soil. I mean, is, is it living soil? Is that what yeah. we would call it? Okay, that the CO two levels were too high, damaged the plants. A very curious comment there, but you know, some some people have asked me, you know, if I, if I grow in living soil versus I'll just say an inert cocoa or rock wool or something how can I account for the CO2 that's produced by that living soil? And and I don't know of anyone who's actually tried to quantify that. I mean, obviously it must be producing CO2. You probably also want to be delivering oxygen, right? To the roots um, or to, not just to the roots but now to the living organisms in it. Is that why it was sort of damaging the plants was really more of a root zone sort of issue than in the air? Uh, so
2: there are some interesting older papers that I'd found in studies with tomatoes and chrysanthemums in indoor growing environments where carbon dioxide concentrations above, uh, 2000 to 2,500 PPM, uh, did start to cause some, uh, intervental necrosis and that kind of thing. I can try and share the paper. Oh, I'd love that. Um, but Yeah, we just saw this, the the CO2 would skyrocket once we uh, sort of rehydrated the media to um, off the charts. It was over 5,000 ppm. Wow. um, Right at the beginning of the cycle. And then as you sort of ramp the lights up, the plants would start to get this intervenal necrosis uh, and just kind of store. Some cultivars were way more sensitive to it than others. And if you slowed down... The light ramping and you could get rid of some of that co2 they seem to tolerate they seem to adjust a lot more easily to it
1: that is so interesting i really just learned something so fascinating right now thank you you know i mean i i always argue on the other side of having a fully sealed indoor environment without having any exhaust or ventilation because you know people are like oh but i don't want to lose the co2 or i'm afraid of outside air and, and so they completely seal and recirculate the air systems. And, you know, I've seen a lot of plants stall because there isn't any CO2. And if they're not enriching with CO2, or let's just say the CO2 system goes down, a valve stays closed or your tank runs out, that now you stall your plants because they're starving themselves. They've used all the CO2 they can. And now it's 100 parts per million. In the room, and and so I usually make the the other argument of why you should have exhaust and ventilation to bring CO two in. At least having ambient levels of CO two is better than no CO two. And here you have you've you've experienced the opposite um, phenomenon. That's really interesting. Yeah, like
2: everything with indoor environments, you you have to be able to balance it out.
1: Yeah. So so tell me, okay, you guys are growing in a fully indoor um, facility, um, why, what are the advantages of growing, um, cannabis indoors, uh, an organically certified cannabis with living soils indoors? Why not in a greenhouse? And, you know, maybe it's an obvious question, but why not outside in Whistler? I
2: mean, outside, we would definitely have a plethora of challenges. This area, there's definitely a well-known, um, outdoor growing community uh, that was part of the legacy market but being in the pacific northwest we do have a lot of those uh, really humid really wet days that when your flowers are trying to finish it just wouldn't really be setting yourself up for success i think a greenhouse is a really nice way to bridge the gap between uh efficiency and being able to use natural light and still being able to control your environment a little more to steer your plant a lot more in the way you'd like it to go indoors I think really developed in cannabis because of the legality of the product Mm. in the past but it is nice that you are largely operating independently of what's going on outside so I mean here our climate can vary quite dramatically we'll have days of minus 15 and please forgive me i don't know the fahrenheit equivalent <laughs> and then last summer we got up to 47 degrees celsius so wow that's crazy hot. crazy temperature swings and so you know being indoors you just have a better opportunity i think to mitigate those swings and ensure more consistent plant performance throughout the year
1: so other other than the issues you had with co2 what have been some of the other challenges you've experienced of growing cannabis indoors
2: balancing the climate aspects obviously if you're controlling everything for this plant now you know if you adjust one lever you need to understand how you're going to change the other to still keep your plants in a somewhat happy state of being so Understanding how the plants performed under uh, the LEDs, which we'd switched to as well, we found was a slightly different challenge. Um, we had to increase the temperature of the room to get the leaf surface temperature where we wanted them to really optimize the plant's performance. And then we had to adjust some of our nutrients as well in order to keep up with, with the plants. We found that they just seemed to be quite a bit hungrier and really efficient light intensity I think that that's also part of the you can't always control how quickly things are going to become available in the same way that you can with salt-based fertilizers if you're applying blood meal or a fish meal or something like that the the rate Mm -hmm. of mineralization isn't always super consistent depending on how old your media is how wet you keep it and how it's been managed over the years as well.
1: I mean that's really an interesting statement is that you have these nutrients that are available all the time to the plant and maybe even the bioactivity of those microorganisms in the soil are also changing over time. I mean have do you see trends like how the plants and I don't know how much data or how closely you monitor what's going on with the environment or the plants but I'm just like almost curious, like, do you see like this ramp up of like the plants, you know, transpiring more, eating eating more, I'll just say eating more, like first lights come on and then is there like a dip and then they come back or do you see any trends like when those nutrients are always available to the plant? I don't think that it's as
2: drastic as you you might see um, in other situations and it also becomes challenging to achieve you know some of the finishing quantities that you might see in in uh, rock wool or something like that I found because you have to you can stop applying nutrients but you can't always control you know how long those are, are going to continue to be available for because it's not like it's going to be completely used up or all released within a week and you know then it's no longer there so um, and then you also have to set yourself up for the next cycle because we're perpetually harvesting and reusing the same media time and time again. So knowing wow. how you can balance that so you're re-upping in time for your next crop is a whole challenge. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I mean, it just sort of dawns on me that, that you're really controlling two biological zones. You know, like I just think about the plant. We always think, you know, there's the root zone and there's, you know, the shoot zone right? What's above and below ground. But you are also managing this whole other biological system with an organic living soil that, yeah, that balance must be really fun to try to manage.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And unfortunately it's not always as easy to measure as some of your Mm. climate parameters or something like that. So it, it keeps it interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. You brought up climate, you know, that's um, my, my first love here. So what have been some of the the challenges that you face specifically around climate management that you've been o- able to overcome and learn through your experience?
2: So circling back to switching to LEDs and, and using those, it was interesting as well to, See, as we elevated the temperature of the room, we got better performance out of our dehumidifiers. So Uh um, now we had to adjust some of our set points so that we could actually stay where we wanted to because we knew that we weren't going to get down to the lower humidities that we were aiming for. So under the previous set points, but now that we could run the rooms a little bit warmer, we could actually get to those humidity levels that we were aiming for, which was a nice adjustment to see. The other, I think, big gain that that we had and big aha moment was uh, airflow as well. When we, actually, after listening to a podcast of yours, picked up one of the hot wire anemometers. Yes, and started doing some mapping of our rooms, and uh, you just wanted to cringe sometimes when you saw some of those airflow values, and then maybe understood why you know your soil wasn't drying back the way you had planned, Mm. or plants were performing better or pu- more poorly in, in certain areas based on where the airflow was adequate and maybe what microclimates were occurring within a growth space. So having a tool like that really um, allowed us to make some decisions regarding airflow and know that we were making positive improvements instead of just guessing.
1: I love that. Did you see necessarily that if you saw a dead zone, for air that you would always that that would be correlated to maybe a hot spot in the room or or could the temperature be good and the humidity be good but the airflow be totally out of line
2: typically we saw it when when we had reduced airflow the vpd sort of in the opposite position that we wanted it so mm. it would always be you know cooler and either cooler and wetter or hotter and drier. So. We had done some trials with some horizontal airflow fans as well instead, but we previously had flow fans just to try and homogenize the climate a little bit more um, and get things moving around. So there weren't as many dead spots where the climate was particularly bad.
1: So you switched from vertical airflow fans to horizontal airflow fans?
2: Yeah. I love it, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I love that you
1: actually saw an improvement.
2: Yeah, it. Uh, we haven't done the full switch in all of the rooms, um, but yeah, it was really interesting. We had uh, data loggers uh, spaced at different intervals throughout the room to track those changes over time and under different conditions as well, um, and it was really interesting just to see the variations and when you did the vpd calculations for all the parts of the room understanding why the the canopy heights were so different or your crop performance varied so much within a room so so wow you actually think some of that
1: was related to the the vertical airflow like maybe the pattern that those were creating or something
2: yeah they i understand their applications but in indoor i think there's so many other obstructions Mm -hmm. uh that can interfere with the flow of those fans and and what they're designed for um if you look at some of the design specs you know they need a lot of space and no obstructions underneath them or anything like that and so with the way our HVAC system set up and our light racks and everything were I just don't think that they were greatly compatible for one another
1: yeah they just couldn't couldn't move the air the way they were intended to exactly Interesting. Interesting. Switching gears slightly, do you want a plant to always be happy? And, and what would you consider a happy plant?
2: So I think it would depend on the stage of growth, but generally I would say a happy plant. I'm looking for a certain intensity of greenness. Uh, I'll be looking at leaf angle at uh, the amount of leaf blades on a plant and maybe the the stem diameter. And obviously within the media, you can kind of scratch away and take a look at your your root health and root vigor. And touching on the, I guess, the stress side of things, I do think that you do need to have targeted stress with cannabis. It seems like every grower you speak to, depending on their system, has different ways that they like to achieve those stresses. But I think that you do need a relatively healthy plant to begin with to ensure that you're still getting the quality finished product at at the end of the cycle. So if we determine quality is our cannabinoid content, the shape of the flower and the yields that we're getting, I think you do need relatively healthy plants for most of the growth cycle and then some targeted stresses to bring out maybe some of those alkalides and that kind of thing that you're looking for in your finished product.
1: Yeah, that's a really good way to put it is to you really want to wait to stress the plant until you absolutely have to to bring out some of those characteristics that you're looking for. But otherwise, if you have a stressed-out plant the whole time, it's going to be more susceptible to powdery mildew or to any of abiotic and biotic stress triggers. So really you want to wait till the very end to do that. I bet one of the things that you guys don't do, that some growers do, is a big flush of the media at the end.
2: No. That would just kill
1: your soil, right?
2: Yes. And I just don't think that it's possible in an organic system without making other huge sacrifices to plant health. And I do... I think it's interesting i know that there's not a ton of research but i think there's the one paper everybody knows about where they they have done some trials on flushing in cannabis and it didn't change the content of the flower
1: mm-hmm.
2: um it didn't make it more smokable t- no i actually listened to a really interesting talk the other day about someone saying it had to do with the uh, calcium to boron ratios at the time of finishing and that's what gives you a good smoke at the end of your okay at the end of your flower but no, I don't think that flushing's necessarily bringing out the best in anything. I wonder if that had to do with all the super heavy applications of fertilizers that cannabis growers traditionally mm. applied if you followed all the label rates and then suddenly just only feeding water maybe allowed some of those nutrients to become more available and your, your plant response was good afterwards. Oh my God. Um, because some of those label rates, I think everybody knows, uh, or were a little obscene. Really? <laughs> well, yeah, extremely high levels of uh, yeah. some of those fertilizers. And um, in some people's way of thinking, more is always going to be better. So I think people were applying potentially applying a lot more than they needed to. And this is going way back. There's a lot of really... Yeah. well-educated growers out there now, and I think uh, that idea is changing, um, but I think in days of old and where that theory sort of came from was potentially coming from people just over-applying.
1: That's so interesting. Do you see, I mean, going back to climate, do you, do you see changes in how you're able to manage your indoor climate based on what's happening outside? I mean, you had mentioned earlier needing an exhaust system to relieve all that CO2 that was being produced by your living by the living organisms in your soil. Does that also mean that you're bringing in some outside air? And does your method of control or, or how you're able to control, say, cooling and dehumidification change if it's negative 15 degrees Celsius outside or 47 degrees Celsius outside? Or are you pretty much like immune to that? We're definitely not
2: immune. Um, so
1: that makeup air that we have that passes
2: through the filters and that we use to exhaust, it's preconditioned to a certain spec. And depending on what the outside conditions are, that conditioning process might change the humidity of the air. So, for instance, when it's really cold and dry outside, uh, you know, when it's minus fifteen, you usually have really low humidity as well. Um, And so as that air is being conditioned, bring brought into the building, it's a lot warmer and drier. And so if that's the makeup air in your dry rooms and that kind of thing, it's way more likely to overshoot your humidity set point that you're aiming for. So we do have to make some adjustments of how we turn the makeup air on and off and how much exhausting we want to do in those situations. But it can also be helpful. So, I mean, people don't always like to talk about the near... Death experiences of catastrophic power outages and losing networks and that kind of thing. But yeah. Just being able to do that in the event that you have lost control can really be helpful, especially if you have some, you know, cooler air outside and you can condition a little bit to a more optimum level and, and bring that into your grow room instead of sitting with super humid, um, really warm air if your lights have just, you know, stopped all of a sudden and you you're going to have those humidity spikes and that kind of thing so being able to bring in some of that uh, makeup air at least as predictable condition I think is helpful
1: so you would still you would have like that makeup air unit on like an emergency power system a generator or something just to be able to continuously like bring air in and out of the room
2: yes that's yeah. awesome so yeah, that was definitely, again, something, unfortunately, you, you learn the hard way which things are important in the power failure and not. Uh, so yeah, it, it took a little bit of time to figure out what units we needed on that residual power. Um, but I think we've got a slightly better system now with the exhaust fans going.
1: Yeah, that's great. And I bet you must save some energy too if you're able to use some of that cool dry air um, in place of using air conditioning, in place of using compressors um, to do some of that that work for you, that cooling and dehumidification work for you.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, and I mean, that was a big uh, gain that we had as well when uh, we did make the switch to LEDs to just not having to cool nearly as much yeah. um, in the rooms to get that right plant
1: temperature. Yeah. Well, I, I love that you're talking about makeup, air, and exhaust, and using the outside climate to your advantage. Um, we, we talk a lot about airside economizers. I did a whole series um, this summer, a four-part series on airside economizers, which is basically what you're describing, using the outside air to either precondition or condition your indoor plant environment when the climate is right outside. And when it's drier and cooler outside than it is inside, Um, because obviously if it's humid outside, we probably don't want to bring that air inside (laughs) if we can help it, (laughs) except to exhaust the CO2 (laughs) in your case. Yeah, sometimes you have to. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what variables and metrics do you look at on a daily basis? Do you? I mean, do you? I, I kind of imagine on it, you know, like you kind of like walk into the quote unquote office and you're like looking at a screen, looking at data to make sure things don't fail or, you know, things are in spec. Is, is that is that what you do?
2: Yeah, we're not all by by just feel here. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> so in terms of climate, we'll always be looking at our temperature, humidity and CO2 levels, the light intensity that the plants are being, subject to depending on the stage of growth that they're at. We do periodic testing um, on our media, leaf tissue testing and and water and nutrient testing as well. And then in terms of outputs, obviously we're looking at our yields and uh, then tracking our potency data as well.
1: Yeah. Is potency, is THC the dominant feature that consumers in Canada are looking for?
2: I don't know if it's the consumer alone that's looking for that right now, but it's definitely Mm. what the recreational governing bodies are asking for, Um, especially in more premium products. The understanding is that people that are paying for higher price point want higher THC. I think, you know, from experience, sometimes you'll get 20% 20% strain or 18% that can hit the same or has a whole other experience. Um, but the way that the market seems to be going is really focused on high THC at the moment. Hopefully that changes a little bit because it excludes some other wonderful genetics that are out there and other great mm-hmm. user experiences that should be available to people, but that's yeah what everybody's buying right now. So that's what we have to go.
1: Yeah. And I mean, at least it's quantifiable. That's one, as opposed to like something that's aesthetic. But yeah, I talked to a lot of growers who kind of wish that that would go away or at least wouldn't be the only thing that people cared about, right? Like it would be about the bouquet, it'd be about the taste, it'd be about the overall feel and not just about this one number.
2: Yeah, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking sometimes. Some of my favorite cultivars that we grow aren't necessarily the heavy hitters and and it just seems disappointing that no one else will get to see what you see in that special flower and I think everybody's kind of got a couple of strains like that Um, and even from a medicinal perspective as well you know people react differently to different cultivars and if all we're focused on is is high THC then some of those people that might find you know a cultivar that works really well for them for their pain or w- whatever they're experiencing, they might end up missing out on that because we're just so focused on heavy hitters. And it might actually shy some people away from even partaking in the market if you're going to get obliterated every time you eat Exactly,
1: try. exactly. I'm, I'm not a heavy user. And, um, you know, like to think... If, if I took a hit of 30% versus 5%, I feel like I'd have so much more joy in 5%. I could, you know, theoretically take six more puffs than if I just took like a puff of 30%. And that would be way more enjoyable to just kind of hang out. And also for me, I've learned that if there's a little bit of CBD in it, that it really cuts the, the jittery part of smoking for me. So I actually look for things that have at least a little bit of percentage of CBD in them. Um, Cause I tend to enjoy that experience a little bit more.
2: Yeah, I agree. And that's the thing. Everybody's a little bit different with what they're looking for and uh, there should be products out there for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> not, yeah.
1: not just the heavy hitters among us. <laughs> <laughs> so as a cultivator, what does the word efficiency mean to you? Efficiency would be, I guess you could look at it from two ways. There's
2: the the process side of things. So how can I get my product from this beginning state to its end state with as few interferences or steps as possible? And then from an input perspective, the lowest cost in for the best output. Um, so yeah, I think if you're talking about Facility design, for instance, using things like LEDs, we found really just helped the efficiency of our energy use, which was a big overhead for us as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. So in terms of process, and I, y- you use the word interference, I thought that was a really interesting word you used. Is that, I mean, is that more about like labor efficiency or, or I and may, I maybe I'm just thinking of labor, but I guess a process doesn't have to be laborious is it really just about like having fewer steps or fewer things to do in between step? I'm saying, using the same word, steps (laughs) and steps. (laughs) It's
2: not open. I'm I'm picking up what you're throwing down.
1: Um,
2: So it's not always how many steps are there, but sometimes the whys of why we do things, um, especially when you're first, you know, you've moved into a new facility or, or you're first trying to figure out how you're going to dry or how your product's going to move through somewhere. Sometimes you create steps because you don't have the right equipment or something at the time. But as time goes on, you need to be able to audit some of those processes and maybe ask, why are we doing this? And is that necessary? And is that, you know, going to impact the final product? Is that for better or for worse? You know, I think It's interesting being in a North American market where labor inputs are really high compared to maybe some of these other countries that are, you know, developing countries that are coming online and will potentially be able to produce product for a lot cheaper because the labor inputs are a lot less. I think you have Mm -hmm. to be smart about how you're going to use that and how you're going to set your system up so that you can get the best bang for your buck.
1: Can you give an example of a process of, of that, asking that question, why are we doing this? And then not doing it anymore because you realize it didn't have value or enough value to continue doing it?
2: Sure. I mean, I think a big one, and, and I think this is quite contentious amongst the you know cannabis community, but let's just say uh, using machines for your post-harvest production, which is a really labor-intensive process you know whether it's your your bucking or your trimming we say that we you know hand trimming is going to give us a better product but is it always and and what makes it a better product and you know at the end of the day the business needs to be able to sustain itself for the long haul not just a couple of years so how can we balance what we like it to be versus what it needs to be in order to be efficient so i mean trimming is just a really interesting one and i think the machines have really come a long way we still hand trim large portion of our our product and then we machine trim some of it it's all finished by hand ultimately but you know you'll definitely have some people that will be stuck on on hand trimming that when we've done potency analysis between machine trim and hand trim there isn't a statistical difference really um I think it really comes down to you need a quality operator, and certain machines do perform better than others. We have been through a few different units, um, and some there was more of a difference than
1: others. Hmm. But that's really interesting. I mean, for, those, for the ones, for the flowers that are solely hand trimmed, do you sell them at a premium?
2: Uh, we actually combine them. Oh okay uh, in in the pack I, and I do think there's definitely more of an aesthetic look that I think hand trim offers that I don't think machine yeah. trim even if it's all touched up can get um, sometimes you know if you have a really good operator they can make it look as close to hand trim as possible but there's just something about that hand manicured flower that I think looks a lot better without taking off too much but hmm. we try and offer a spread within a jar so you'll get nice you know, your hand trimmed cola and then the rest will be machine trimmed the other thing is sometimes the larger flowers the colas at the end you tend to get a little bit more damaged in the machine okay. i find kind of circling back to the the operator portion having someone who really knows the right moisture content and how to put it through they can make or break that finished product i think and I don't know if that's where sometimes they've got a really bad name, but I think they've really come along a long way. From sorry, I just said a long way again. Um,
1: <laughs> they've progressed. They've I use progressed steps like fourteen times. So, <laughs> I mean, I saying that the operator matters for the trim machine. I'm glad you circled back to that because I was kind of curious, like what does the operator have to do with it? I mean, isn't it about the machine? And and then you said like knowing the moisture content. So So is the operator the person that is like looking at the dried product and deciding, okay, this is, the right moisture content to run through the machine that it's not going to overly damage it or remove too much of, you know, the, the THC or, um, trichomes or whatever. Is that, is that what you mean by the operator is skilled? Yes. Okay. Yes.
2: Um, and there's also different settings. So, um, depending on what machine you have, if there's a vacuum, or if there's a blade speed or, um, you know, how, oh. if you're using a Tumblr machine, how full it is, um, if you do have product that you feel is a little over dry, how fast are you going to pass it through the machine so that it doesn't get too beat up? How are you going to slow it down? If it's a little wetter, are you going to run the tumbler fuller or lower? And then you've got people on, on the other side of it that are going to touch it up and try finish it up. But you, you need the bulk of the work to be done by the machine without annihilating all your
1: hard work. Wow. Okay. I know nothing about trimming clearly. (laughs) Do you, do you climate manage the room that that trimmers in? Does that matter?
2: Not as well as I would like. It definitely matters. Okay. It's, it's actually something we're working on right now. Uh, if depending on the machine, um, and the heat output of the machine, if it, if it heats up, it does, it will make your product uh, more gummy and that's going to impact how well your product goes through the machine. It can influence your terpene loss as well and it's just a lot more kind of stopping and starting because you'll have a lot more build up of all of your uh, precious cannabinoids and resin on on the blades you'd have to stop swap them out and that kind of thing so if you can manage your climate a little bit better you can you know retain a lot more of that those uh, quality parameters that you're looking for
1: okay interesting well i just learned a lot about trimming so very (laughs) cool Is research important to, to cannabis and, and moving this industry forward?
2: I need you to show me the person that says no, because I'll have an earful for them.
1: Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs)
2: Uh, Absolutely. One of the nice things about working for a company with a bunch of different growers is we can put our heads together and, and try and come up with collaborative solutions sometimes. But it is really frustrating that there's, you know, just a drop in the bucket um, in terms of research that you can actually go to and make educated decisions from. So instead of, you know, having a whole bunch of research papers that you can look through and and make a decision off of, sometimes you have to set up your own sort of staged R&D trials, which um, you obviously don't really want to be doing in a production room because it's, it's risky and it's consequential. Um, and you can't always extrapolate that because you, you're not controlling for as many variables as you would if you were setting up a proper trial. So, absolutely, I I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone who who isn't dying for more research.
1: So, you um, do have like in-house research that you guys do.
2: Yes, I think that's what keeps the whole cultivation team going. But uh, yeah, we why we just because a...
1: like it it feeds that curiosity. Oh, when... Oh yeah. Yeah.
2: Everybody just, you know, wants to improve the work that they're doing. Um, And so having a team dedicated to, to running those trials and, and putting all that data together and making sure that we're doing the proper analysis on it. So we know we're making the right decisions is so invaluable. And we're really fortunate to have that as, as a resource.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. If there was one thing you could ask researchers, let's just say academic researchers to study, what would it be? That's,
2: that's tough. Okay, I'm going to go post-harvest for this one. Okay. I need someone to tell me what is happening in a bag when it's curing. Ah. Um, I, I want to understand all of the volatiles that are released and any enzymatic uh, reactions that are happening within that plant. Um, I'm, I'm so fascinated by that process. And again, it's one of those things we, we actually do steps because that's what you know we've learned from experienced growers in the past. This, this is what you do, but I don't think that there's really any solid research on the, the why. And there's definitely a difference if you choose to not do that, but I, I need to know why.
1: So when you say there's a difference if you don't do that, so what would, what would that look like if you didn't have a curing process? Like you just dried and then trimmed and then just packaged.
2: Yeah. Um, and just, it's interesting, even the the difference in quality of product that we get, if you, you have something that dries super quickly or something that dries more slowly. And right now um, we actually have an in-house team that's looking at, you know, the difference between whole plant drying. So cutting a plant and, and hanging yeah. that and, how that influences the final product versus, you know, let's say bucking all of your flowers and then drying them that way and seeing if there's any kind of differences. Cause again, everyone's got different systems and you know, some people are wet trimmers. Some people are dry trimmers. They hang whole plant. They dry in six days. They dry in 10 days But we can't always understand the exact nuance behind it and how that yeah. influences the final product.
1: Do you think of what you just described is always going to be a nuance of cultural practices across different operations? Or do you think if there was academic research that said, you know, whole plant drying in 10 days, you know, across these 15 cultivars, right? I know there's like a billion cultivars, but let's just take like a cross section of 15, right? A big sample And this is the way that, you know, and we've replicated, duplicated this research, you know, 10 ways in 10 different states or whatever, and and said, this is the best way to do it. Do you think like still growers would do it at whatever way they wanted to do it?
2: 100%. Okay. (laughs) I think that comes with the territory, doesn't it?
1: (laughs) That's the love of farming, right? Everyone says it differently.
2: Yeah, exactly. Everyone has their, their personal spin and little quirks, the secret sauce that makes their product just that little bit better.
1: Right, right. All right. Um, so you have some experience, I mean, you talked about environmental management, you know, I, I think you, you know, been uh, have done some work or have been focused on, on IPM. Do you have any recommendations for our listeners on how to create or or maintain a clean environment for production or even post-production, like during post-harvest? I
2: mean, I think everyone would just say, you know, start clean, stay clean. And that's way easier said than done. Um, I think a big win is when you can get your team on board, because at the end of the day, Um, And I love our staff, but they are potentially your biggest vector for disease, like bringing things in from outside and we love them dearly. But if you don't get your staff on board with caring about what they might be bringing in or how they might be contaminating the final product at the end, um, you're always going to be fighting an uphill battle. And so I think educating your staff on um, how they can influence the final product and how they can... Be involved in making it better is a really great way to empower them to make the right decisions because it doesn't matter what your position is in the company. You can't be there all the time watching what Sally's doing uh, every two seconds of the day. So she needs to be able to make good educated decisions um, and she can only do that with the right training.
1: So you, you train your staff on how to be clean and stay clean. Uh, yeah, not not just the showering part, but um, uh, <laughs> use this just, soap, not that soap. <laughs>
2: um, understanding, for instance, how something like powdery mildew uh, reproduces, and then how it might travel from one room to another, mm-hmm. and what are some of the steps that we can take in between, or you know, when we have new research that we hear about on viruses or something like that, letting the team have some exposure to that type of information, uh, same thing with our microbial results, because in Canada, you have to have everything tested, including for micro. So letting people understand when you know we, we've failed a micro, what that means and what those sources of contamination are. So people can just have that extra moment to think about their actions and how it might be um, affecting those end results.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I love that you... Don't just say, don't do that or do this, but you actually educate them so that they can make that educated decision and understand what impact and consequence they might have on the overall operation. I think that's fantastic. Thanks. So do you consider the indoor cannabis or maybe just the cannabis industry collaborative or competitive? And, and you're in Canada and so... You know, you could stay in Canada if you wanted or North America or international. I don't wherever, however local or international you want to go. But do you think this is a collaborative or competitive industry?
2: I mean, I think it's always going to be a little bit of both, but I would say largely collaborative. And I think a lot of that's born out of not having access to information um, Mm. that you need all the time. So the best way to gain more is to share with others. Again, I I feel very fortunate to be a part of a a bigger team of of cultivators um, that work for Aurora because we all have different problems and experiences. And so you can really get together when one person sees something, you can say, hey, have you seen this before? What did you do? How would you how would you react? And, yeah, I didn't always have that opportunity before, especially when things were a little more secretive. So. I've never had someone that hasn't been had a strong opinion on maybe how things could be done or how they do something. And that everybody kind of wants to show the unique ways of getting the job done. Right.
1: Yeah. Were there any benefits to being secretive and not sharing and collaborating?
2: Yes. Okay. Um, You know, I, I, I'm sure. I mean, the market in Canada, for instance, I think is really competitive in terms of there's, there's a lot of supply on the market and there's a lot of good growers out there that are producing high quality product and the price isn't what it used to be. And so, you know, if you need to have that competitive edge over the next grower or something like that, you, you probably don't want to share everything. But it's also extremely hard, even if I had to tell one person verbatim everything I do they can't just go apply it to their system. Every grow is so unique and we could try and build it the same in the same place. And there would still just be some things that work for me that don't work for you.
1: Thank you for saying that. Um, <laughs> there was the ver- vertical farming is incredibly tight-lipped all the growers and all, all, all these companies. And um One grower made a comment recently um, from that space that said, you know, you could watch a cooking show, have the recipe, have it on repeat over and over and see exactly how they like mix those ingredients and what temperature they set the oven to, you know, like all these things, but the chances that you are actually going to be able to recreate that masterpiece is almost nil, right? Until you have the experience that that chef or that experienced person has in making that recipe. And I just thought that was such a great analogy for why we don't necessarily need to be so secretive is that there are nuances to everything we're doing. And just knowing, you know, one light intensity for one cultivar doesn't mean a whole lot for other cultivars or for if you're growing in living soil and someone else is growing in rock wool, the outcomes might be different. So, you know, it's, yeah. And, and maybe we could be more successful if we work together a little bit more.
2: Yeah, I agree. Um, and again, working for a company that has multiple sites, it's so interesting. You know, we've tried to grow each other's sort of pet cultivars and the difference is is shocking. You know, if you send pictures to, to the other cultivators and it's, you know, it grows completely different differently. The chemistry profiles are different. Um, what you know, is a twenty five percent strain here is only a twenty percent strain there, and the inverse isn't necessarily true. So yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I think cannabis is unique in the sense that there's so many cultivars, and they really do seem to have a preference. You know, how they like things. But yeah, it's it's really fascinating to. Hmm. to see something that grows so well, for instance, in our facility somewhere else, and they're just like, what kind of garbage? Um, (laughs)
1: That's so (laughs) interesting. I mean, and it could be anything. It could be the media. It could be they didn't track the same VPD. It could be they're still using vertical airflow fans. I mean, it could be so many things. Yeah, Yeah,
2: exactly. And that's even with, you know, sharing some climate set points and that kind of thing and trying to build in all the caveats. Yeah, you just can't replicate
1: it the same. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention even, I mean, being able to replicate those climate set points, if you have a different HVAC system than what that other grower has, your ability to even replicate that same schedule of set points might not be there.
2: Or if you have different senses, even, which is uh-huh. also good. <laughs> Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. My, my 27 and your 27 are not the same
1: thing. That's right. That actually at, at our next workshop, I expanded the whole section on monitoring and controls to include a section specifically on sensors and accuracy. And what does that mean? And what does that mean when you have a, you know, like you say, I want plus or minus half a degree control. Does your sensor even measure half a degree in difference,
2: right? I mean. And will it stay there all the time? Uh, we we do sensor audits and it's incredible. Nice. If you don't know that drift is a thing, you should really figure it out because um, it's scary sometimes depending on the sensor and they're all a little bit different depending on what they were designed for. But yeah, I mean, we've seen some humidity sensors that end up varying over a year by up to 10%. And so, wow, um, or sorry, drifting. So what you think is a 60% is a 70% and you know, that's a problem. Um, do you get
1: those sensors calibrated or do
2: you replace them? If they have the ability to be calibrated, some of them you can calibrate themselves, but typically we'd have replacements, um, on hand so that we could, we could do that.
1: Yeah, and humidity sensors are notoriously drifty.
2: <laughs> okay. okay, I'm glad it's not just <laughs> No, no, no.
1: They are, they're horrible. Um, I'm assuming your temperature sensors probably don't drift as much, but still drift away from your set points or your targets.
2: Yes, and the CO2 sensors as well, which, mm-hmm. as I've mentioned before, can also be impactful.
1: Yeah, yeah. How do you predict this industry is gonna evolve in the next five to 10 years?
2: Are we talking about Canadian or internationally? Ooh, any, wherever you wanna go. Okay, based on maybe some other higher priced crops that have been out there and the amount of countries that are quickly legalizing, uh, growing and exporting. I feel like there might be a large supply in the market and so I think that the real defining factor for everyone is going to be is can you produce a quality product consistently time after time? Because I think that those buyers, whether they're international or your provincial boards or whoever ends up regulating cannabis in your area, they're, they're going to have be able to pick the cream of the crop every time. So I think there's going to be a bigger drive to towards that. And maybe we need a better definition of what true quality is to mm. to to understand that um, i'm hoping that there is a bit of a maturation in the um, client base as well in more in the sense that it's not about the high thc or you're not just chasing a label number and that there's an experience attached to that in the same way that you don't go to the liquor store and say Where's the 151 or the 70%? Exactly. You, know, <laughs> you, you want to enjoy your experience and not write just get off trashed for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> um, it's, it's really going to be interesting as uh, more and more countries start to play on the same field. And uh, just depending on how um, different countries, I think, regulate what product comes in and what comes out going to get interesting i think
1: it is i mean canada i mean in the u.s you know like we can't even like sell across states so we suck that way but (laughs) in canada you don't have problems with that provincially right like you could sell something to quebec Uh, and that's okay
2: yeah so the different provinces regulated differently most of the time you have to sell to a provincial board and they distribute to their stores but some provinces you can sell direct to stores. okay. Um, And then the medical channel is totally different. So that's people that Uh. have to have a prescription and then you as a company can sell direct to the consumer. But yeah, uh, as far as going across uh, provincial lines, you you can get in an airplane in Canada and fly with a bag of weed. Um.
1: (laughs) Supposedly we can too, but I don't know how many people try that out. <laughs> <laughs> what about internationally i mean canada has been involved a little bit right with some international i don't know what you call it trade um or exports and i guess it'd be more exporting i don't i think you have enough supply you probably don't need to import anything
2: yeah i i think we're we're pretty tapped as far as imports go <laughs> but uh export wise i i can't profess to know all of the countries that are exported to but i know a few different companies are exporting to australia uh, the european market israel as well yeah there's there's definitely product leaving um leaving canada for is that because they're not
1: they're not growing themselves there or do they just like your guys's product
2: uh i think the it, it's usually places where the uh regulated markets are in their infancy and Mm -hmm. there's maybe not a good supply of quality product and maybe there's you know people are just jumping through all of the hoops uh, that regulatory bodies require in order for you to get started and so um, while there's there's good product available on the market that's ready to go I think that there's still quite a bit of demand for that product in those countries Um, but it'll we'll see what happens again when you know the internal producers all catch up yeah but that obviously building all the infrastructure and having the legislation in place and all of that really takes time so I think for some places it's just it's still a little bit easier to just import stuff that you know has got a you know safe stamp on it
1: right right you know and I, I think about Japan like you know they produce their own rice but they really like Californian rice so they still <laughs> import our rice even though you know They can grow it themselves and, you know, they have China and and other countries that are neighboring countries that produce rice. They like our medium grain rice that we grow here in California. So they're a major importer of our rice. So I could see, you know, something like that happening even with cannabis that, you know, there's some special quality or some brand loyalty that even those countries, even if they're producing their own, still want yours.
2: Yeah, agreed. Even provincially, it's interesting with the legacy market uh, product produced in BC. And BC bud has a reputation in uh, other provinces, and so I think that there's people out there that want the BC product because they feel like it's of a different quality and and finished, maybe what they yeah. might otherwise be able to have access to.
1: Because West Coast, best coast,
2: <laughs> you know it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, by the way, is cannabis? produced in uh south africa yes
2: so it's it's also it's pretty new to the game okay um they weren't wild about it at first but then they saw other uh, southern african countries starting to export to europe and it's a great uh way to create jobs in countries where unemployment's obscenely high and they have a lot of great climates for Producing sounds uh, like it. What you decent quality earlier. product, and uh, yeah, I mean that's where some of the landrace strains ended up coming from. So really, I, I think that yeah, I didn't know that. I mean, like not all necessarily from South Africa, but you've got your Congolese strains, and uh, I mean obviously Durban Poison. Um, oh yeah, you know, the Swazi yeah. Gold. There's there's a few okay. different varieties that you know that's where the roots are, and so I think going back to that branding piece it might actually be interesting to see hmm. if we see that branding on some of those varieties that come come out of there interesting i mean the other really interesting thing i find about cannabis is you need to find something that's going to grow well and grow efficiently in your system cuz you could spend a lot of time and effort trying to nurture a good cultivar, but you could also just find something that grows well for you. Exactly. Grow that with a lot less effort.
1: Right. I mean, that's what we do with a whole bunch of other plants is that we breed them right to, to fit a certain climate, or we just figure out, oh, this is the climate that they naturally grow in. So why don't we recreate that or grow them where they actually grow naturally. I think that's one of the problems with cannabis is that at least, you know, when I think about the U S is that there's all these different cultivars that could grow in all of our different, I mean, we have so many climates in the U S. Um, and rather than trying to force plants to grow in environments that we may or may not be good at creating for them, if we could just find what those cultivars are that grow really well in Texas, or really well in Humboldt, or really well in Boston, right? Or really well in Michigan, that then we wouldn't have to work so hard to create the climate and the environment to fit something that wasn't meant or bred to grow there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's a great circle back to your efficiency question, because, mm. I mean, that's lower input for better output at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And then maybe we don't need as much energy intensive equipment to, to manage those environments by just going with the environment that we have. So that could take us down a totally different topic of climate change. So let's maybe not go there. We'll save that for another conversation. All right. So what do plants crave, Angie?
2: I feel a bit naughty about saying this, but I think six.
1: Oh, um, yes.
2: At the end of the day, I feel like that's what we're even in cannabis. That's what we're trying to drive is these plants that want so desperately to get pollinated or, you know, fruits, that kind of thing. That's we're looking for the reproductive organs of a lot of different plants. Essentially,
1: That's true. I mean, that's what a flower is, right? I mean, and, and cannabis is so unique in that it's a dioecious plant. I learned this term recently, meaning it only has, right, male or female parts. So those poor female plants are just really horny, I would imagine.
2: Yes. <laughs> 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 and we just kill, kill them before they ever get it. Oh,
1: poor things! But... <laughs> <laughs> They're like brain mantises, but not. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Great answer. I haven't gotten that one yet, I like it. All right, so now I always end my interviews with some rapid fire questions. So just answer in you know one word, one sentence, a couple sentences, if you wanna expand on anything, please do, all right, are you ready? I hope so. Okay, are plants introverts or extroverts?
2: cannabis is extroverted why because it likes to show off
1: at the end of the cycle yes it does otherwise we wouldn't have so many beautiful instagram photos right exactly (laughs) can cannabis create a more sustainable world
2: maybe 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 I think controlled environment agriculture has a lot of opportunities that we might be able to, um, leverage to enhance food security. So maybe we're not using as much land or as many practices that are detrimental to the ecosystems around us.
1: Mm -hmm. What's the best advice you've ever gotten about growing plants?
2: Less is more.
1: I like it. What's the worst advice?
2: Um, also a tough question. Maybe feed them more. Yeah. Just hammer them. Yeah. I think was the, the, really
1: somebody told you to hammer the plants with feed.
2: Just, just just (laughs) go for it. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Poor plants as they die. (laughs) What is one thing you really miss about South Africa? That you could, that you wish you had in BC.
2: The people, it's got a totally different culture and pace, and yeah, definitely, definitely miss that. Which one is
1: more fast paced?
2: Oh, South Africa, one hundred percent.
1: South Africa is more fast paced.
2: Yeah, but it's it's not about the speed. It's it's just very dynamic and unpredictable and there's something very exciting about that
1: awesome yeah I imagine like being in sort of like snow country and mountain country in in Whistler would be pretty chill yeah it's I mean
2: beautiful uh but it's very quiet but yeah South Africa it's just a a wild card you you never really know what you're going to get in a day Interesting. Very cool.
1: Well, Angie, thank you so much uh, for this conversation. I learned a ton um, and I really had fun talking to you.
2: Thank you. You too. You've been a big uh, influence and I think some of the positive changes that we had here. So thank you very much for having me. It feels like a full circle experience.
1: Yay. Awesome. All right. Well, have a great rest of your day and we'll talk soon.
2: Okay. Thanks, Nadia. Have a good one.
1: Thanks.
0: That was Dr. Nadia Saba interviewing Angie Fulton of Whistler Medical Marijuana Corporation for our series, What Plants Crave. Tune in next week to hear Dr. Saba's interview with Wayne Bishop, CEO of Seven Points Cannabis in Woodlake, California. I'm Dana Swedan, and this has been The Doctor is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Thank you for listening.